Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hey guys, welcome to Medicus. We have an amazing episode for you today about correctional medicine. Josh and I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Chad Zaywitz for this interview. And Dr. Chad Zaywitz is board certified in both internal medicine and infectious diseases. His clinical interests include correctional healthcare, HIV, hepatitis, sexually transmitted infections, LGBT healthcare, and public health. Chad has worked in correctional healthcare for nearly 15 years at the Cook County Jail, and he is a certified correctional healthcare provider with extensive experience in nearly every aspect of correctional healthcare, from frontline medical services to administrative duties. Lastly, Chad is a principal investigator slash co-investigator on numerous research and service grants. In this particular episode, we dive deep into topics about the nuances of correctional medicine, how the healthcare system in a jail actually functions, and discuss some of the barriers that patients slash detainees face. I absolutely loved this interview, and be sure to listen through the whole episode as Dr. Zaywitz shares some stories that literally made my jaw drop. So without further ado, here's the episode. To start off, can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Okay, so I was an infectious disease specialist um, in training at Rush University here in Chicago. And around the time my fellowship was concluding is when you start to seek employment. I knew at the time that I wanted to do HIV primary care. I knew I wanted to stay here in Chicago. But the things I was less sure about was starting my own practice. Quite honestly, I was too chicken and I think was and still am too uh, unclear about how to run a business. I um, was not ready and or willing to work with some of the HIV clinics in the community that were looking for help. And because part of my fellowship training at Rush uh, was an affiliation with Cook County Health System as well as the, the place called the Core Center, uh, I already had a clinic there, an HIV primary care clinic. I actually thought it was a good fit for my, my personal interests. Um, I, uh, I felt like it was part of my mission to serve the underserved. And, and, and so my thought, my thought was, well, I'll just stay here at the core center. But because the core center didn't have a position at the time I was graduating, I, of course, couldn't work there. So long story short, already too late for that. The physician at the jail who was tasked with managing HIV patients was in his 70s and retiring. And he uh, somehow the word got to him, there's this young guy looking for a job. And somehow the word got to me, there's this senior doctor ready to retire. Why don't we introduce them? And maybe, you know, the magic will happen. So ultimately, I came, visited him in the jail, saw what he did. And to be, you know, as truthful about it as I can be, my intent wasn't, oh, goody, I'm going to work in this jail. My thought was, well, it's a county job. It's easy to move laterally once you're in the system. I'll chalk it up to experience. I'll do this for however long. And then once the core center does have a position, hopefully they'll still want me and I'll just zip over there. So that's the, the long story, uh, the short answer is serendipity is how I sort of ended up at the jail. Did you know that, uh, so you said that you did infectious diseases, kind of like your, your subspecialty. Did you know you wanted to specifically focus on HIV patients or was that just kind of a par for the course? No, I, I, I wouldn't say it was quite one track, but I was fairly one track in terms of wanting to do HIV primary care pretty much from the time I started medical school in uh, 1995. Why were you kind of so, like, why did you know? 
Well, I think as as you and some of your listeners can probably attest to, once anybody in your life learns you're going to be in medical school or, or going to be a doctor, and even if you're not one yet, you're already a doctor. Mm-hmm. This is the mid-90s, and if you put it in the context of the HIV epidemic, mm-hmm. this was the, the peak of the so-called plague years. Um, people were uh, had had limited to no you know meaningful treatment options, dropping like flies um, left and right, and some of my um, very good friends were uh, in the HIV community. A couple of them sort of uh, acknowledged their HIV status to me at the time, mm-hmm. and started asking me questions. And as a medical student, pretty much first year, and knowing nothing about HIV, but now having a very personal context of people that I knew personally and cared dearly for. I started to read and learn, and through the uh, the magic of osmosis, the word gets out, and you know in your medical training, some of the docs around you, hey, this one's interested in this, this one's inter- interested in that. So the HIV infectious disease department sort of Took you under absorbed me. <laughs> <laughs> they absorbed me, and then I, I kind of got hooked. What's your normal day-to-day like? Like, how does it differ from, like, a normal physician? Well, aside from the obvious, which is I work in a correctional facility as opposed to a traditional medical center or medical facility clinic, um, the hours are are fairly fixed in that it's it's technically shift work. Mm-hmm. A lot of doctors in real life uh, understand going into their career path that medical services often blur the lines between your time and work time, and that's just something we all know. We we know it going in. We choose this career path. The jail, on the other hand, is uh, a, well, as I said, shift work, but it's a bit of a a fixed setting. You know, while there aren't specific clinic hours, my typical day, I probably arrive at 7 a.m., do some pre-clinic work, whatever I can get done before people show up, as you know, productivity when there aren't people around, Mm -hmm. do my clinics, uh, do whatever my other responsibilities might be, and the workday ends when the work is done. But the nice thing is, and this is where the difference comes, when I'm off the clock, so to speak, I'm technically off the clock. My patients can't call me. They're incarcerated and they don't have my phone number. There's no call center or anything of that nature. So my time is is my time. Mm -hmm. And that uh, that that cliche about work-life balance is not really a cliche in my world. And it it brings me uh, a value to to an intangible like that. It's just hard to create that unless you're doing shift work in medicine, like ER medicine maybe, or, or, mm-hmm. or MICU attending, or some sort of a scheduled service. If you're primary care, you expect that you're going to get calls um, on your kid's birthday, at night, on your vacation, whatever, and I need a refill of this, I need a whatever. I, I, we have a, there are people that do all that when I'm off the clock. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of the biggest differentiators. So what do you, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but what do you actually do, I guess, at the jail? What do I do? Oh, yeah. gosh, I wear a lot of hats. My, <laughs> my, my primary title would be the infectious diseases specialist, but mm-hmm. I'll kind of walk you through a, a number of my duties. My, my biggest uh, time allotment is HIV primary care. So I have, uh, in a work week, there's 10 half days. So I work, I work Monday through Friday, so I have 10 half days. I have seven clinics. Five are basically HIV clinics. Mm-hmm. Those are weekday mornings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monday afternoons, I have a general infectious disease clinic for whatever else that, that might come you know, through the consult list. Wednesday afternoons, my half day at the core center, which is the same outpatient clinic that I had alluded to earlier, was where I wanted to work in the first place. And that is 
a continuity of care concept where my HIV patients in the jail who do not already have an established provider in the community are welcome to come to see me and my team as an outpatient. So those are my seven clinics. And then the rest of my time are the other duties. I'm the acting chair of infection control. So we have a uh, 6,000 detainees on the compound. We have capacity to, I think, up to 8,000. So you can imagine infection control as a, a, a significant sort of side duty there, side mm-hmm. responsibility. Mm-hmm. Outbreaks, investigations, reporting to health departments, um, collaborating with, with community um, programming. I also have duties and responsibilities as a principal or co-principal investigator for a number of research and service grants. Um, These are usually external agencies or researchers who want access to our population, and they need an on-site investigator who knows how the jail works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are some of my uh, additional duties. And and then lastly, uh, I, I work a lot with our health system administration at the jail to revise, review, and write our, our, our policies, particularly the ones that pertain to my field of infectious diseases. So those are, I would say those are the, the primary duties mm-hmm. on a week-to-week basis. This next question, let me paraphrase this because I know like listeners are going to maybe attack me for this. And I want to say that I don't take this position whatsoever, but I, a common criticism that I, I kept coming across as I was doing some research to try and prepare for this was this idea that that maybe there's not a moral or ethical obligation to treating first off is it inmates is that the better uh, inmates detainees what's the uh, vernacular right. so for? that's yeah that's a good point to, to clarify for the listeners mm-hmm. um, when you're in jail mm-hmm. actually one step back I think you were going to ask me this but what jail, jail, jail and prison, prison? Yeah. Right. so first because it's important to answer your question yeah. so Jail means pre-trial detainee. So the, the nomenclature would be you are a detainee in, in a jail setting. Okay. And pre-trial means you have been accused of whatever alleged crime, and you are awaiting your day in court. If you are convicted, found guilty, then you are sentenced, and then you go to prison to carry out your sentence. And when you're in prison, then you're an inmate or a prisoner, offender, uh, as another term that sometimes is used. Those... So the classification is detainee jail and inmate slash prisoner slash offender in prison. And the last thing, which is super important, and you guys have heard me say this before, jail does not mean short stay and prison means long stay. It means pretrial and convicted and sentenced. That's the distinction between the two. So good Lord. Yeah, so, but the, the, the question was... Deserving was, of care. Yeah, so uh, a medical oblig- or ethical obligation, and the, the reasoning, the rationale, that the argument that kept coming up when I was doing this research was that for some of these um, detainees, they're suspect, there's evidence that maybe they've committed some sort of crime, um, and yet they're getting guaranteed access to medical care, health care, uh, food, water, shelter, etc., when a lot of these basic rights are not necessarily guaranteed to law-abiding citizens. And so how would you respond to like some of these critics? Well, I, I guess first of all, I would hope as humans and as a collective society, we care for each other. We care for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's not us and them. I have heard this, this concern or consideration or, or whatever term you want to use for it. I've heard it before. And I truly, you know, I can appreciate why law-abiding citizens who, many of whom are struggling to to meet day-to-day obligations, pay their bills, pay for expensive health insurance, Mm -hmm. would feel somehow um, off-put, jaded, cynical, angry, or or whatever negative connotation towards someone who's accused of a crime or, quite frankly, convicted of a crime, Mm -hmm. but they 
are going to receive all of these things, these services, quite literally for, for free or for almost free, mm-hmm. and, and quite frankly, at our expense as taxpayers. And my response to that is, again, first, well, these are human beings, and crime or no crime, as a civilized society, we need to show and demonstrate compassion for human beings, even if the human being you're showing compassion for, for whom you are showing compassion may not have done so to their alleged victim or, or, or convicted victim. Right. Uh, I, I just think that's, that's part of being a human being. Yeah. Um, we don't turn our backs on our own kind. The second thing is, you know, and I, and I, I know you've heard me, but I, your, all your listeners have not heard this. So I, I give you my hypothetical question. And when people hear this, they, they sometimes kind of pause. And the question is, who is the most dangerous person, you know, in our society? When I ask that hypothetical, I've heard all kinds of responses. You know, the person with the gun, the person with money, the person in power, po- political people, mentally ill people. They have all kinds of answers. My answer has uh, unwavered, and it's someone who has nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you strip people down and take everything from them, and let's be fair, guilty or innocent is not the, the context of this conversation. When you're incarcerated, at least temporarily, even if you're innocent and you're simply a pretrial detainee, you are now stripped down from whatever you had. It's, it, it's, it's going to be gone when you get out in many cases. Your apartment may be gone, job, friends, pets, your stuff, gone. And when you strip people down to, to nothing, they still have basic needs that simply must be met. And so aside from, and we're going to answer the question, and I promise yeah. we're going to answer the question, <laughs> but it's important to give this some yeah. context. Oh, yeah. So why would you expect a different outcome when you release them out of custody? Because, you know, people, not everyone's going to be a life sentence. Most people actually aren't. The vast majority are coming home to our communities. If you take everything from them, guilty or innocent, why would you expect once they return to society that somehow now magically you're going to have a different outcome and that things will be better for them so that they, you know, they don't do whatever it is they were accused of doing in the first place. We, we have an obligation legally in correctional systems, to answer your question finally. Mm-hmm. We have an obligation, a constitutional obligation. It is a law. It is written into our Constitution, the law of the land, 8th and 14th Amendments. Essentially, the no cruel and unusual punishment has been interpreted numerous times in the courts, including the Supreme Court, as you, jail and prisons, are required by law to provide for the basic needs of the incarcerated population because they cannot provide it for themselves when they are locked up. So yeah, it seems a bit contradictory, but they are afforded a right that we as you know community citizens are not afforded. If you, the listeners, or anyone have a problem with that, you should probably talk to your legislator about amending the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> so we, 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 I mean, really, yeah. this is not a, you know, good people, bad people thing. This is the law of the land. So if you don't like the Constitution, I suggest you either run for office and try to amend the Constitution, or you obey the law, or quite frankly, you'll end up in jail or prison, and then you'll be glad that you're getting health care <laughs> and food. <laughs> You'll, you'll be glad people like me are in there serving you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that answered the no, question. Yeah. yeah, that was great. For sure. So now to kind of get in the nitty-gritty of the actual patient visit. So let's say I'm not going to use my name because my mom will kill me if I pretend <laughs> that I like went to jail. So let's say Josh gets uh, incarcerated or um, he gets detained. So what happens when Josh goes to the jail? So obviously intake stuff. Um, what is like the basic screening? What is the, 
What is the the patient visit like? How long are these visits? What kind of goes on? Sure. So, of course, I'm speaking to the Cook County Jail's procedures, and many systems have probably some variation on this, but in in a general sense, I'll speak to what we do. You are incarcerated for whatever the charge. First, you get, usually you get booked at a local precinct in whatever part of the city. Then, usually at least once a day, paddy wagons are driving around the city collecting the booked folks, and they bring them collectively to the Cook County Jail to the central processing area called receiving. Mm -hmm. And in receiving, they, they basically get off the bus, the van, whatever, come through, and first the Department of Corrections will, uh, they, they go through a body scanner, they get their personal effects collected and sealed. Um, they're given a uniform, a jail uniform. They get a photo identification card, which will be barcoded and used during their stay for scanning for meds or scanning for medical movements, scanning for court movements, whatever. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, and it does tie in with healthcare, the jail is was and I still think is a pilot site for an Affordable Care Act provision where folks are engaged at intake, where they're essentially asked, do you have health insurance? If not, would you like to sign up for the Affordable Care Program? So people actually can enroll in health coverage and leave jail with a medical card when mm. they didn't have one before they came in. And it's it's a, I wouldn't say it's unique to our jail, but I think it's a fairly uncommon practice and it's being used as a pilot to see how successful this can be. So that's the first step. Once that's the DOC, the Department of Corrections has completed uh, those steps then the, the, the detainees, um, or as I would call them, patients, are batched in small groups of about a dozen, and they're brought through the medical processing area. So they get vital signs and weighed, and then they'll sit down with a health screener, which is usually a nurse or a paramedic. And again, I'm simplifying a more complex process, but it's essentially, do you have any health problems, and what are they? Do you have any mental health problems? What are they? Are you on or supposed to be on medications? What are they? And or do I, the screener, perceive you in front of me to be either in some sort of medical or mental health state uh, or at risk for withdrawal or some other health condition? And if they're cleared and the answer is no, I'm fine, I'm cool, they uh, basically get what's called a white bracelet, which is a little piece of plastic they stick on their wrist that alerts the corrections staff, the officers, this one doesn't need any more attention at this point, and they'll whisk them away to wherever they're going to be housed. Everybody else will get a bracelet depending on their need. If it's medical or mental health, they get an orange or yellow bracelet. And then they're brought to a secondary medical screening area where there are doctors, PAs, uh, mental health specialists, and I think psychologists. And there are there are quite a few of them that staff the intake facility. And then they'll sit down with the, with the patient and say, okay, you were referred because of XYZ. And then and then they're, they're evaluated. Medications are continued or ordered as indicated. And in many cases, they can get their first dose of whatever medicine they need right there while they're still in the intake. So there's, this has been a big improvement over the years. In the past, it used to be we'd write a prescription on paper before we had electronic health. And it would take sometimes up to a day or more before the first dose of anything got to them. Now it's, there's almost no wait time at all in, in many cases for, for uh, the first dose. Wound care, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the people who are deemed unstable or need some higher level of medical attention then are referred to the jail's urgent care center, aka emergency room, although it's not technically a real emergency room. And then the urgent care center can determine their disposition. So we have, that's how the intake process would work. So you, you know, you as a patient, Josh, um, would come in and say, I have 
asthma, I have whatever, and then we would address getting you medications, ask you questions about when your last asthma attack, your last seizure, whatever, we'll document those things. And one, one last thing, in addition to the screening, there are some other things that are sort of a, I think it's called an interagency agreement, where we ask questions about risk factors for things that may make them at risk for, I think the jail refers to them as, as vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. So questions about sexuality, questions about abuse histories, even the nature of your alleged crime, because if it was a high profile, you know, something that was in the news, they're definitely going to want you in, a, in an area where you're going to be monitored more closely, at least initially. Those sorts of things are all addressed right up front mm-hmm. in the intake screening area. So they... Does that then change between populations? Like, for example, LGBTQ versus cis or versus geriatric versus youth or violent versus nonviolent crimes? Is there any kind of everyone goes through the same funnel and then it kind of gets broken down? Everyone goes through that funnel. And mm-hmm. the jail ha- the jail is a it's a massive compound. It's about 100 acres plus. There are about a dozen separate buildings. We call them divisions. And mm-hmm. each of them is has a specific purpose. So there are several of them that are what are called GP or general population, sort of the average detainee. Mm -hmm. And then we have specialty areas for mental health, medical withdrawal and detox, um, an area called a medical special care unit where our more medically complex patients would be housed, a mental health special care unit where their, you know, your acute psych patients will be monitored. That's kind of the strata of how people are determined to have housing. If they come in and get a white bracelet, the Department of Corrections puts them wherever they want to put them. Mm. And there's also security classification, which we, the medical people, have no say in. So minimum, medium, maximum, that sort of thing. Yeah. So there's a sort of an algorithm tree that's that's a, a mixture of security from DOC and medical mental health from our end to determine where they're going to be housed when they're in custody. Mm. So how is how is healthcare provider safety? I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, you know, in like a general clinic setting, you have closed doors, like no one can see. Is there like a... How was how your safety insured uh, when you're providing care, especially for, like you said, maybe like high profile, more violent patients? Sure. So first and foremost, and it kind of blends in with the question of medical privacy, mm-hmm. because of the nature of what, where we work, it's, it's a correctional institution. Safety is the first and foremost for, for every situation, period, point blank. It's, it's our our personal safety supersedes the patient in front of you in some cases. If, if someone was having a heart attack and was dropped down on the floor in the middle of a room where there was a riot going on, we are not going in there to be heroes and rescue them. We would, ha- we would have to wait until security you know, clears, clears the zone. So that, that being said, those things don't happen very often. In my clinic, the detainees, the patients, are brought, they're handcuffed. Um, in fact, they're, the, the policy right now is, with a few exceptions, they're handcuffed from behind. Mm-hmm and they're brought into the room. We cannot close the door, but there is a curtain to provide some semblance of visual privacy. And quite frankly, they prefer that we at least leave the curtain cracked. And the correctional officer who's assigned to that that patient is supposed to maintain some sort of visual sight lines at all times. Mm-hmm. Of course, when you're doing a sensitive exam, they'll allow us to close the curtain completely. So that leaves us with lowering our voices to try to have some sort of audio privacy, um, have some physical distance. I think that the policy is, I think it was reasonable medical privacy. There's some, some, some terminology for the fact that we know you can't have the truest and purest form of complete medical privacy in a correctional facility for security reasons. 
So there's always an officer nearby, and the patients are usually handcuffed. I personally always ask the officer if they would un- uncuff the patient before they come into the room with me. I find that it's dehumanizing in a medical setting to sit there shackled from behind. And I feel like my patients are... More willing to like open up? Yeah, almost. they're yeah. like, oh, well, this guy got those cuffs off, even if it was for 20 mm-hmm. minutes, you know, mm-hmm. and therefore I somehow will... There's a, there's a little give and take. Thing. The trust yeah. is there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the safety thing. But there's always an officer, even if the curtain is pulled, mm-hmm. they're, they're one, hey, help me shout away and right. only a few feet away. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'll throw in is uh, some of the newer buildings on the compound have been fitted with, uh, I think they're called duress buttons. So basically a thing you can whack with your hand and it would signal come in here right away kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The clinic I work in doesn't have those, but there's there's always security around, um, of course, and there's camera surveillance, not in the exam rooms, but out mm-hmm. in the waiting areas. So I, mm-hmm. quite frankly, I feel safer in the jail mm-hmm. seeing patients than I do in my core center clinic because they're the same people minus the metal detectors, handcuffs, security, curtains, and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. while it's a, I think it's very understandable, you know, aren't you worried when you're in there? I actually am not worried while I'm in I'm worried when I'm not in the jail. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So recently, medicine has kind of been integrating more and more technology. Is telemed kind of a thing that's been adapted in correctional medicine? Absolutely. Um, actually, for quite some time. Mm. So I'll speak briefly to what we do at the jail and then to what I know Illinois Department of Corrections is doing. We have a few telemedicine suites built throughout the jail compound, and primarily now they're being used for mental health evaluations. People have you know acute mental health complaints or, 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 or whatnot 24-7, particularly around court dates, holidays, you know, kids' birthdays, whatever. Family members are sick or passing away in the community and they can't, you know, you get the drift. There's a lot of yeah. reasons why people have a, have, a, have a breakdown. And in addition to that, there is a culture, I think that's the term I'll use, that some of the detainees, particularly in the maximum security units where they're there for long stays awaiting their trials, um, they're locked up in their cells for longer periods of time during the day, they want to go for a walk. Mm-hmm. And so historically, one of the things was they knew that one way to get out of your cell was to have a medical or mental health, quote, emergency. And they also knew that if you said things like, I'm suicidal, it was automatically getting you a walk from your unit all the way over to CIRMAC, which is the sort of central hub. And that would be at least a few hours when you're out of your cell going for a walk, even if you're shackled from behind. It's somehow yeah. a desirable thing. So uh, to to relieve the, the, the staffing issues that involve moving somebody with security and, and whatnot, as well as to potentially dissuade inappropriate access to mental health services and time, they built the doctor on wheels and a telemedicine suite. So now what they would do is they'd say, oh, okay, you need an urgent mental health assessment the telemedicine psychiatrist or, or, or specialist sits in front of the screen. Someone wheels the uh, camera and monitor up to the cell and says, here's, here's your specialist. You can tell them what's going on now. Mm-hmm. And once they realize they weren't getting moved, some of the manipulative use of health services was decreased. Mm-hmm. But equally as important, it was a very quick way to get a mental health person face-to-face, quote-unquote, with someone who truly needed it without requiring them to be moved. So it it enhanced security, it minimized abuse of the system, and it's sped up the process. We haven't unleashed the full potential of telemedicine in the jail yet, but there are many services, including my own, quite frankly, that could probably be used in the telemedicine suites. The prison system at Illinois Department of Corrections is is using this similarly. I'll speak to the HIV specialist since that's what I do. Mm-hmm. 
The prison system is run by the state, and it's a private, I believe a for-profit organization that runs the prison health care, contracted out by the state. And they have regular doctors in the 30-plus prisons around the state, which is you know, a big state. The HIV care is subcontracted out through the University of Illinois. And so rather than have their infectious disease specialists and PharmDs and whatnot driving all over the state on some sort of a round system, they built telemedicine suites in all of the prisons, and they have a telemedicine suite at the, the UIC mothership right mm-hmm. down the street from us, and they do telemedicine encounters. So there's going to be a medical professional in the room with the patient who can use equipment, modified equipment, stethoscopes, um, cameras, and whatnot. So if this was me, I could say, could you look in their mouth? I want to see if there's any thrush. Mm-hmm. Could you listen to their heart and lungs, feel for the lymph nodes? So the physical exam isn't done, obviously, with our hands, but we have the, the trusted professional on the on the on site, distal yeah. end who can um, conduct those exams in person. So that's it is being used and I and I I couldn't tell you factually if other specialties are using this in the prisons. I do know that infectious disease does it statewide. Hmm. Wow. You were kind of touching on it just a little bit, but what are some of the biggest challenges when treating, specifically just physically treating patients in the jail? Uh, physical let's say challenges. Um Probably, at least for the HIV world, privacy is a challenge. One, because, like I said, there's no, there's no closed-door system. With HIV, aside from the hands-on encounters, the, the treatment is, is medication. And you might say, well, so what? The jail is it's a fishbowl. Everybody's in everybody's business. It's a, it's a small sort of and very observant and very gossipy community at times. And if you are going out of your cell and being brought to a medical appointment for whatever reason, when you get back... There's people, there are people who are going to say, well, where were you? Why, did you? why do you go to Cermak so much? Why are you always going? And if you go to the pill cart, what is that? And can I have some? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, there's, there's curiosity, nosiness, um, whatnot. So it's for some people, even simply having medicine on them or going to get medicine from a pill cart, even if it's a dose by dose, you know, have the nurse give you one pill at a time so you're not carrying anything, Someone is going to be in your business and say, why do you keep going to that cart? And you need to come up with an answer because mm-hmm. saying none of your business doesn't always work. It doesn't fly yeah. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one challenge. Another challenge is, you know, this is the sheriff's house. This, this jail is the sheriff's house. We work in the sheriff's house. We abide by his rules. And one of the things is our patients are housed where they're housed, but for whatever reason, at whatever time of day they want, the sheriff's staff may say, you're coming with us, we're moving you from here to there. And if your medicine is on a pill cart going to where you were, and you're not there anymore, keeping in mind the the physical distance between point A and point B, it can be a mile. It's possible that a medication dose could be missed until it sort of catches up with you the next day. Mm-hmm. May not be a big deal for something like a statin or some sort of chronic thing, but for an antiviral, a seizure medication, a blood thinner, insulin, things like that could be a very big deal. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's, uh, there's challenges. There are, there, my grammar is horrible. That's okay. There are challenges <laughs> with checklisting before people are moved. And mm-hmm. so we, we do the best that we can, but that's, that's another issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure I can think of a hundred more, but those are the big ones that I personally experience is privacy, number one, mm-hmm. and the movements and the risk of a possible misdose. 
The last one is the linkage to care, which I imagine we'll talk to at some point. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, they're with us until they're not with us. But what do you do when they leave? And if you're d- dealing with a chronic medical condition of any kind, whether, whether it's HIV or, or, or otherwise, we're, we're not in the business of, uh, as I call it, sprinkling pills on people until they leave. We want them to have continuity of care. And unfortunately, that's our and most jails and prisons around the country would attest to this. One of their biggest challenges is how do you continue the care when they're no longer in custody? That's that's up there too. Now, you mentioned you, so privacy, but what about patient autonomy? How does that get handled in the prison system? Do Are patients still allowed kind of full choice to what type of procedures and practices they want to have, or is this? Oh, that's a that's <laughs> a complicated question, but I'll try to answer it. Mm-hmm. Um, they have autonomy in regards to access to care, mm-hmm. meaning chronic care appointments for longitudinal health problems are usually scheduled on a some sort of a timeline. But let's say you're you're incarcerated with for whatever reason, and you wake up and feel like you have the flu, Mm -hmm. and you don't have a doctor's appointment. Access to care is, I wouldn't call it unlimited, but it's, they basically either wave down staff, an officer, a nurse, a medical person, if they see them in the unit, or they can fill out what's called a health service request form. And basically, you know, I would like to see a medical person because one, two, three, ABC, put it in a box. And those uh, forms are collected, I think at least once a day, if not a couple times a day and triaged for the acuity. And then there are primary care clinics and our urgent care center where the patients will be scheduled to be evaluated for, for their medical requests. So they have autonomy in, in, in terms of access. Mm-hmm. They do not have, probably with very few exceptions, a choice as to who they would like to see mm-hmm. for their care. They can't say, I want Dr. X, not Dr. Y. They see whoever's covering their unit for my HIV clinic. I'm the HIV doctor. There isn't another one. So if they, for whatever reason, didn't want to see me, they don't really have a choice. We'll have to work it out. Yeah. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think What that's... about, like, treatment-wise? Like, can patients deny treatment? If, like, say someone has, like, an STI or something like that to kind of help uh, keep the climate under control in terms of the prison setting, can you... Yeah. Are they required to have treatment or... So the only examples where patients cannot refuse things are... If they have a communicable disease that can be transmitted to their, you know, colleagues in the tier. So if you are a, a suspect TB patient, mm-hmm. we're going to put you in isolation and we're going to rule out TB. And if you say, I'm not going to give you any sputum, I'm not going to submit to any tests, and I'm not going to take your medication. Well, they have a right to refuse whatever they want, mm-hmm. but they do not have the right to say, and I want to go back to my living unit now. I don't want to be up here. So the 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 housing is not autonomous they have mm-hmm. to go where we where we put them so to speak mm-hmm. and that's i think common sense you know if you have a flu like illness you're going to isolation until we deem you no longer potentially contagious to the people around you the n- sort of non contagious situations people have the ability to decline or refuse care tests even movements to go see doctor appointments if they choose to mm-hmm. But we, we require them to fill out some refusal documentation, um, partially to document and partially for our own protection. Are you aware of what you're declining and what will happen to you if you decline this test, if you decline to see this specialist, whatever? And once they're properly informed, if they choose to decline, the appointment will be terminated. 
But it doesn't mean they don't go back. If they change their mind, they can always fill out a slip or, or mm -hmm. one of us may meet with them and say, listen, you really need this test. And we, we don't just go, oh, well, you know, screw right. you. We, we, we really try to communicate the importance mm -hmm. to them. And, and, and yes, there's refusals. I just thought of one other example, and it's it's unrelated to me. It's a mental health situation. Mm. People who are deemed, you know, mentally unstable at, and particularly at risk of harm to themselves or possibly to people around them, it is possible to petition courts to involuntarily medicate people and in some cases use restraints, but those are used with very strict procedural uh, mechanisms yeah. and guidelines. So you can't just put someone in four-point leather restraints and leave them strapped to a, a table somewhere. They ha they can only be on for like 15 minutes before they're reassessed. And it's a very, very rigid system to make sure there aren't abuses of, of physical or chemical restraints. Um, and they're used very judiciously uh, when absolutely necessary, but they're not just blasting people with Haldol just to quiet them down. That doesn't mm -hmm. happen. Gotcha. Hmm. Um, how do patients transition to community health care when released from the jail or incarceration? And I kind of want to dig deeper on this topic a little bit because I know from your previous talks, um, you came to medical school a couple times before, you said that this is like one of the bigger challenges and kind of like bridging that divide of what happens after. So yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, I can tell you how we do it in our HIV clinic, and then I can speak a little bit to what the primary care providers do for their patients. So for the HIV clinic, uh, and I, I said this a little bit earlier as well, if they see me, if they, you know, touch home base with me, everyone at their initial visit, aside from the medical evaluation, is assessed for their continuity of care. So do you already have somewhere you go? Do you plan on going back there? If they say yes, then great. Follow up with your provider. Good luck. If they say uh, no, or I lost my insurance when I get out of here, I don't know what I'm going to do, whatever the story is, or maybe they've never been in care, then they've just met it. It's me. So I, of course, give them my, my business card. I put contact information on there, as well as the core center's contact information, access phone numbers. And um, we try to make sure that, if nothing else, I, I sort of jokingly call the core center Motel 6. We'll leave the light on for you. <laughs> so whether you choose to go there or it's your backup plan, the bottom line is you have somewhere you can go, and we will take care of you. So everybody has, at least in the spirit of things, the ability to have at least one place that they can get their HIV uh, medical services. That's great. We also have a what we call a re-entry re coordinator. So there's a, a hired staff member, usually paid through grants that unfortunately come and go, mm -hmm. and they work with me in my clinic to when I'm done with my medical assessment to basically reinforce the messaging I just explained there, which is, look, when you get out, where are you going to go? Give me all your contact information. Give me your address, your phone number. We'll reach out to you when you're, when you're released to try to connect you in case you lose Dr. Zaywitz's card or whatever the story is. Mm -hmm. So we have a reentry coordinator. And then the final piece of the puzzle is we have a case manager who works through um, funding from the AIDS Foundation of Chicago. She comes one clinic a week, th usually Thursday mornings. And my patients who profess additional non-medical needs like housing, transportation, food, income services, whatever, they'll meet with the case manager who can do a needs assessment and sort of get the wheels turning on how we can more quickly engage them in those types of services once they're no longer in custody. So those are the, the, the prongs of establishing continuity of care in HIV clinics. 
We have a pretty tight system because of the nature of HIV and our health system's acknowledgement of this importance of continuity of care. For the non-HIV patients who have just whatever, diabetes, chronic mm-hmm. medical problems, they still need continuity of care as well. Unfortunately, that makes up a very high volume of who's in the jail. We're talking about thousands of people who are getting out month to month. Complicated, no no rigid fixed system or a simple referral to one location. We we try to educate our patients on the availability of, you know, county health system clinic sites. We have handouts we can give them. We uh, offer them, if they don't want to go to a county health system, we offer them information about wherever it is they might want to go. They might have heard about somewhere, but it's it's not fair to call it loosey-goosey, but it's it's not as rigidly systematized as my HIV clinic is. Mm-hmm. And it's challenging because I think the majority of people uh, – we have no way to track who's who actually connects to care. So this loss to follow-up concept is probably profound. Mm-hmm. What percentage of patients would you say then actually actually receive continuity of care afterwards? Well, again, I can only speak to the HIV. Sure. And, I, and this is a hard one. So I, I can't answer the question specifically. These are soft numbers. Yeah. We, we know about 40% of the people that we refer to ourselves at the core center schedule appointments, Mm -hmm. but not all of them actually show up. So the other 60% doesn't mean they weren't in care because some of them might go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. We have no way to know. So I can't tell you if 8 out of 10 people are actually in care, just that they're not coming to see me. Mm -hmm. Of those who schedule at the core, we always have a no-show rate. Um, It it, it varies from week to week. But uh, I would say that less than half of the people that are scheduled to see me are actually keeping appointments, at least keeping their first appointment. Maybe they come in later. Hmm. Has the affordable care uh, initiative that's been kind of implemented at Cook County, has that improved these rates or has that kind of been kind of a mixed bag? I would, I would say mixed bag. I, again, I don't, I don't think we're track. We in our HIV clinic are tracking that specific metric. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that when they see me and they see my my team in the HIV clinic, with or without insurance, they can still come to the core center. And when they come in, they'll meet a benefits manager on the very first visit to enroll them. So not having a medical card at the time of release should not be a barrier to anybody getting access to care, at least at the core center. And I know of other community clinics that accept people without insurance and will do the similar process of enrolling them. So there aren't a whole lot of systematized barriers to preventing people with HIV from accessing community care. It's mm-hmm. more like the chaos of life that is what's holding people back sometimes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And touching on the sort of administrative and reform process, who mandates the policies that I guess that you have to follow or that are implemented in the jail and the jail's healthcare system? And then how does that reform come about? Okay, so I, uh, we have a couple layers to this. There's Cook County Health System, which is the overarching Cook County Health and Hospital System umbrella organization, Stroger Hospital, the Core Center, Oak Forest Hospital, Provident, and the community clinics. Cook County Jail, CERMAC Health Services is one of those sort of sub-organizations. So we have our overarching health system policies, most of which apply to us equally as they would to the rest of the health system. Within our own 
sort of micro facility. We also have our own sort of guidelines and, and some policies and procedures that clearly would not apply in a community site. Like, how do you handle a hunger strike? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you handle refusals of care and things that may be unique to the correctional setting? And those policies are primarily written and and revised by our own internal health administrators. Uh, risk management often helps us to make sure that whatever we've come up with is, you know, legal and, and complies with community standards and things like that. Um, that's, uh, there are many of us involved in writing and rewriting these things. I'm, I'm, I do the things that are directly connected to infectious diseases, but there are other champions. Uh, we have transgender uh, policies and procedures. We have, you know, mental health policies and procedures. So the the experts within our own facility would would be the ones who write and rewrite these things to try to make them as functional and and, and useful to us as possible. And then the last piece is the the sheriff. You know, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, we work in the sheriff's house. So there are sheriff's rules, but we also share duties and responsibilities. So there are what are called interagency agreements, and that usually is between our health our CIRMAC health administrators and the sheriff's administrators, where wherever there's, if you take a Venn diagram and wherever that overlap is, they will work together to make sure that both of us, the sheriff's folks and the medical people, are aware of their roles and how they work together to make sure our patients get you know access to care and move to care um, and whatnot. Is there any topics that sometimes maybe you end up like butting heads with the sheriff or these other interagency uh, organizations and, and how do, how did those conflicts get mitigated? And specifically I'm thinking, I remember back on one of your talks where you spoke on, uh, there was an individual who asked how does contraception get handled mm-hmm. in the prison? How do you prevent like the spread with condoms or, or whatever? And, and I remember you saying that, yeah, condoms are considered contraband. So how do, how do those like hard issues get tackled or changed? All right. So that's a, that's a, it's a fabulous question, obviously a hot topic. Yeah. So I can, I'll, I'll use the condom example, but, you know, and it, is, it isn't resolved. Um, yeah. So a community sort of standard, I think common knowledge, uh, certainly amongst healthcare, if not everybody, is that condoms are one of many ways to prevent the transmission of sexually transmitted infections and to prevent pregnancy. We, we know these things. This is a, established for mm-hmm. probably a century. Yeah. <laughs> it's not news. Um, but that being said, Inside the correctional institution, and many, many, many jails and prisons uh, have same or similar approaches. Is condom is uh, it's quite frankly it's a physical object that has at least in theory potential to be you know abused, and mm-hmm. and, and most people it's scra- they scratch their head and go what are you what are you getting at? And so in theory, a condom could be used as a weapon, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, anything can be weaponized. But surely, a condom could be used as a weapon. There. They can be tied together to make ropes to to do things, strangling, hanging, whatever. They can be used to uh, put body fluids, um, excrement, and tied off and make so-called biohazard bombs. Mm. You know, there are there are there are these theoretical mystical ideas that condoms could be used for the forces of evil somehow. Mm-hmm. So I'm not entirely sure if that's the 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 principle behind why they're considered contraband, but ultimately the the you know, correctional administration has, for the time being, viewed it as a complicated issue. I think there's another element to it, which is, can sex in a correctional facility be consensual? Mm-hmm. And there is uh, an, a, a law called PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And this, this law, it's a federal level law, mandates that all jails and prisons have implemented 
quote-unquote measures to try to reduce or eliminate, well, prison or jail rape. Yeah. The, the problem is defining what is rape. Right. And most people envision some sort of a power differential, um, some sort of a, a, almost a violent act, or not almost, definitely a violent act. Mm-hmm. But in a jail or prison setting, sex is complicated because two people can say to an interviewer, no, no, we, we wanted to do this. That's my boo. <laughs> but ultimately, you don't know if one or one of them might have been coerced. Listen, you know, when we go down to that office, you better say this was consensual or I will, you know, I'll kick your ass. I'll steal your commissary. I'll whatever you or your yeah. friends or family or whatever. So because there's at least this mystical concept that consent of sex in a correctional institution is is really impossible. And I don't agree with that. I'm just saying this is how Priya can be interpreted by, by some people. Mm-hmm. If you are giving them condoms, there may be a perception that you're acknowledging and promoting prison rape, which is, to me, you know, caca poo poo. It's, it's right. nonsense. What condoms are is saying, look, call it rape, call it consensual sex, call it what you want. As a public health person, I see it as, well, at least if it's going to happen, consensual or otherwise, at least they're not transmitting diseases at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe that someone would say, wait, before I rape you, let me strap up with a condom somehow. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Mm-hmm. So the condom issue is complex. We have had conversations with jail administration about it. They're, they're open to discussion, but I, I think right now it's just sort of on a, a holding pattern. Mm-hmm. We think the solution would be to have and what would help the jail administration out is rather than make it a sheriff's decision, why not take it to a much higher level? Make it a law. Make it mm-hmm. make it make it a statewide thing that people in correctional institutions must have access to prevention, mm-hmm. you know. And then the sheriff can say, Well, it isn't up to me anymore. Right. Look, you know, the state says we have to start doing this. And again, then you sort of pass the, the baton button, yeah. to <laughs> higher ups, but this is what our our, our real legislators, that's their duty and responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. public health is part of, of legislature's responsibility to the citizens of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are, you know, food for thought when you're, when you're voting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't sure. see condoms in jail come up on a ballot too much, but uh, it's, it <laughs> probably it should. should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think now would be a great time to get to know a little bit more of the stories that have stuck with you. Uh, in in your time spent at the jail, and uh, I, I see you smiling, and I, I know this is like the the best part of any of your talks that you give because they're so revealing and so different, and that's that's actually why we wanted, you know, we kind of said before that's why we wanted to do this episode was to kind of hear um, just like the some population the most, that you work with is so different, and and yeah, what have been some of the most impactful stories, like the the paradigm shifting things that you were just like, man, this was. You know, before I went into this meeting, I completely thought this, and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, so, I mean, I, yeah, where to start, right? <laughs> I, 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 some of these are just, you know, th- there, are, there are stories that are funny and stories that are sad and stories that are head scratchers, mm-hmm. and all of them have had an impact on me in one way or another. So I'll use, actually, I think you, this is one I used every time I've given your, your students, um, your colleagues, uh, this lecture. We'll start with my first week on the job. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, I'm, I'm fresh out of my fellowship. I'm working in this 
sort of atypical clinical environment and quite frankly had literally zero orientation to what it was all about. I just was like thrown into it and just like begin, you know, (laughs) not even things like don't give them things like alcohol pads and band-aids that seems like common sense uh, that it wouldn't be a big deal, but it turns out that those types of things are that's those are weapons, you know. So I was given no at the time no meaningful orientation to the, even the basics. So my first uh, actually I have two first week on the job stories. The first one was this this young lady. She was a, a commercial sex worker. Referred to me for um, for an HIV uh, evaluation. She comes into the room, and as I'm taking my history and getting a sexual history and whatnot, she tells me she's a sex worker, and as we're, we're digging into this, you can see her becoming emotional. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, I was arrested because of indecent exposure. And I'm thinking like, okay, this makes sense. She's a sex worker. She was in an alley doing something and I don't know. But what had happened was she said her, you know, her John, her trick, her client, whatever word you want to use, uh, apparently did what he was doing. And then when it was over, he strangled her to the point of unconsciousness. Um, I don't know if he was trying to kill her or what, but gra- grabbed her neck, strangled her till she basically blacked out and threw her naked body into a dumpster. And when she came to and she climbed out of the dumpster, then she was arrested basically for being naked and mm. came to the jail. And then she pulled her hair back and I saw these bruises on her neck that looked like someone had been gripping her neck. It was clear that she was telling me a truthful story. And I was completely unprepared for even just thinking about this story now. I'm kind of like tearing up because it was a powerfully emotional thing. I thought I was treating HIV and I'm hearing this this story of, of devastating humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, this stuff really happens. And I, I was overwhelmed by what had happened to her. And I... I like she left and I started crying. Um, and I remember leaving the clinic and, and having to go up to talk to the medical director saying, this lady told me this story and I just kind of broke down. I, I don't know if I can do this. But the, the, the best part was the support that I got and the reassurance that we've all been through what I just experienced, uh, the humanity of, of, you know, and we're going to be chin deep in stories like that week to week, day to day, how to to accept that it's okay to feel moved, mm-hmm. um, but also how to, to limit that because you can't just start crying in every clinic appointment and then right. go home and have nothing, you know, nothing left for your spouse or your partner or mm-hmm. your own life. You know, these mm-hmm. these psychic vampires, as I call them, mm-hmm. can suck this the, 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 the emotional energy from you. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a very powerful lesson to learn right from the start was mm-hmm. your, you're going to need to learn how to, to, to build a sort of, I hate to say build wall in this political climate, but <laughs> you have to learn how to build some emotional barriers mm-hmm. to protect yourself so that you have something left to care for your patients. And it's not something I was taught in medical school, um, and I was very ill-prepared for it, but I have learned through, you know, through serendipity over mm-hmm. the years how to process the, the unbelievable things my patients share with me when they come into the rooms. Mm-hmm. The second story from the first week or two was, you know, I'm an infectious disease specialist. I'm there to provide services for those reasons, but I'm also, you know, boarded in internal medicine. So I came out of there 
sort of marching in with this big, proud grin on my face. I'm not just going to do this. I'm going to do everything because because I'm you know I'm smart and I'm good and I'm going these these people are going to love me because I can do it all. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so my patients who had HIV, they have asthma and seizures and and whatever other stuff they have. All of which, for the most part, I'm perfectly capable of treating Handling. in some cases and manage. So I remember going, oh, sure, here's your inhaler, here's your seizure meds, here's some Benadryl, here's whatever, whatever. And I'm writing for all this stuff, thinking, you know, they are going to love me. And then one day I got a call uh, to go see a patient in the psych unit, um, lockdown unit, because they weren't going to bring him down to my clinic. And when I went up there, I'm new, nobody knows me, and I have my badge on. And one of the nurses sees my badge, looks at me, points at me, and goes, it's you. And I, I <laughs> said, <laughs> yeah, I said, excuse me? And she says, it's you. You're the one. And I, I'm baffled. And I said, "What? the one what? And she said, you're the one writing for all the, and then starts listing all of the things I've been writing for all of these patients. And I said, yeah, what's your point? And she said, don't you know what they use that for? And I said, you know, asthma? You know, kind of clueless. And she yeah. said, no, no. They all say they have asthma, and they all say they have whatever they've been telling me because what they do is they grind up all the other stuff that you prescribed, put it in the inhaler, and they huff it, and they're all high, and now we've lost control of our unit because you're giving them all these drugs that are making everybody crazy. And I didn't even, like, conceptualize that people that would— That happens? <laughs> well, uh, not for me anymore. Um, but, yeah, I mean, anything in the jail that has the potential for— a mind or mood altering side effect is a coveted commodity. For us, it's medicine, but psych meds, pain pills, Benadryl, things that you might otherwise perceive to be fairly benign have street value in corrections. And so it's not that you can't prescribe them, but there have to be some uh, layers of, of additional consideration before you you give them. They may have to be in a a dose-by-dose unit where the nurse will watch them swallow the pills so that they don't hoard them and then sell them or Mm -hmm. get a high enough dose that they can get a, you know, you've probably seen how Imodium is, you would have never thought of that as a drug of abuse. In fact, I I never had thought of it as a drug of abuse, but it turns out that Imodium is an opiate-like effect. And Mm -hmm. if you have enough of it, you get a buzz. So these are these are things you you know learn. you don't <laughs> learn in pharmacology class, but right. you'll you'll learn when you work in a jail or prison pretty quick what they use that for in quotes. Mm-hmm. So that was another one. So I learned to reel in my stay in your lane yeah. a little bit. One of one of my um, more touching stories is a a woman named Patricia, and she's okay with me using her name. Um, she's I've, I I didn't give you her last name anyway, but I. I I'm confident that I'm not violating HIPAA, plus Patricia means nothing. It's There's probably 10,000 Patricias out there listening, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So she was a sex worker. She had hepatitis C. She had HIV. And she had actually very advanced disease when I met her. She'd been coming in and out of the jail, was essentially not linked to community care, or at least wasn't able to stay in care when she got out. Struggling with addiction was her problem. And I remember every time she came in, I... I I don't know what it was about her, but I just I just liked her, and I, I just really wanted to help her. And maybe I was just being nice. But one day she came in, and she, she gave me a letter she had written. And then she left, and later I opened this letter, and I read it. And it was basically a it was a very nice thank you letter, essentially, for, for caring and for trying to help me and whatever. But there were a couple things about this that struck me. One was that it, the penmanship, quite frankly, it was, it was written beautifully with, with very nice handwriting. And number two, it, ha- it was 
it, this was clearly an educated person. That this, that it was proper grammar with SAT level words sprinkled throughout this thing, it, and it was beautifully written. And you know, I just I've gotten a lot of letters and cards from patients over the years, but I've never received anything that was just so well written. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't just let that go. You know, so I called her back and I said, Patricia, got your letter. I read it. You know, and thanked her, and it was this emotional thing. But um, it made me want to, to, to tell her something. And I told her a story from my high school experience, which I will share with you. It's, it's not a long story, but it, it plays into this. So to nobody's surprise, when uh, I was in high school, and probably if your listeners are in medical school or, or, phys- or you know, medical professionals, many of us were quote-unquote nerds. <laughs> and I would have been, in my high school, the king of the nerd herd. That's what they called me. And I was. And I wear that badge proudly now, maybe not so much then. <laughs> so uh, I remember, though, as, as a quote-unquote nerd, that I sort of secretly longed to be more socially accepted and to be a part of the, quote, cool crowd. And there were people that I admired from a distance that I felt I wasn't part of their social strata. And at the end of our senior year, everybody gets their, their yearbook and they run around trying to get signatures and their friends and get mm-hmm. those little, mm-hmm. you know. And I remember approaching one of these people I had sort of idolized thinking, well, I'm never going to see him again. And I already, don't, I already don't have his signature in my book. So worst thing that will happen is he'll say, nah. But he took my yearbook, scribbled something in it, and then left. And later I open up this inscription and I'm reading it. And basically, among the other things he wrote, he said, you don't even know your own greatness. Wow. <laughs> and, and I, I couldn't believe it because I was an achiever, you know, good grades, student council, you know, all those things to try to, to, to further my, my aspirations in academia and ultimately to be a doctor and all that. But I had never even imagined that those people like him had even noticed me, let alone observed my achievements and what I was capable of. And it, it, it changed my life. Um, so <laughs> with Patricia, I remember telling her this story. And then I said, Patricia, you don't even know your own greatness. And <laughs> she just like, and I'm about to cry myself, but she like burst into tears. <laughs> and um, I didn't really think much of it at the time. But when she got out, she actually did then come to see me at the clinic for the first time ever. And she linked to care, and ultimately she got sober and got housing. She got her teeth fixed. I mean, like everything, all these little pieces of her life, one by one, sort of fell into place for her. And fast forward to a couple years later, and she's emailing me saying, guess what? I just graduated. She actually, in her 40s, decided to go back to school to get a graduate degree. And now she's speaking and lecturing all over the country about her experiences. And she she goes back all the time and says it was that moment. Wow. (laughs) And the point of sharing that, aside from that it's touching to me, is that, you know, your listeners, um, you're being trained to assess your patients and provide, you know, the best medical care that you can. But you should always remember, whether you notice it or not, your patients are listening to you. Hmm. And they, even if they don't acknowledge it at the time, they, they hang on your they hang on you. Mm-hmm. So be thoughtful about what you say because you never know how that will affect somebody, whether it's a good way or a bad way. They're listening, and, and it does matter to them. 
you are an authority figure when you wear that white coat. That is that is power, and you and responsibility, and you uh, should respect that and remember that it's not just here's your prescription. Um, see you in a couple months. Yeah. There's there's more to it than that. Hmm. That's that's one of my favorite stories. And she still to this day every couple months, you know, she'll send me an email just checking in and mm-hmm. constantly. She's she's written articles and she usually throws in an acknowledgement at the end. And I keep saying, Patricia, you did this. You know, <laughs> th- th- I'm grateful for your 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 comments and what about about that moment in your life. But mm-hmm. like, I didn't go to school for you. I didn't achieve this. You mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Be proud of yourself. You're 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 going to change lives. You change. You made me a better doctor. And I think that it's a good point because, like, as as I'm hearing these stories and and uh, just in general, I I bet it's it's really tough, kind of going day in and day out, like seeing some of the worst of the worst or the uh, impoverished the the cycles that that happen in the jail. And you kind of almost touched on the the callousness that you might need to set up, like the the barrier that you were saying, just so you can kind of get through. But it's so great to see the um, the emotion and the passion and, and the, the the care. It never leaves you, even as a physician working in the jail system. Uh, well, I, thank you for that. But I, I have to be fair and honest and say that it's not that it's never left me. I, I you know, I'm human, and this these human things that that happen over the years that I've witnessed or, or, or participated in as a physician. They do affect me. I do take them home with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have an unlimited wellspring of empathy and, and psychic energy. I lasted a lot longer than I thought I would, but it was actually about a year ago now when I, fe- I experienced my first, and again, these are terms, I don't like them, so I don't know what the right term is. I don't like the term burnout, mm-hmm. and I don't like the term compassion fatigue. I think those are semantics that people use to try to cushion a ill-defined element that comes with providing, you know, giving constantly. That's what you do as a doctor or provider. You give constantly. But I experienced it last year, and I got to the point, um, I'm being honest with you here, I had a clinic one day, and I looked at my, who was scheduled to see me, and I went, murderer, 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 murderer. Oh, my God, it's murderer's row. You know, what the hell am I doing here? And and, and, And it was that moment. And thankfully, I had the insight. I should have never viewed my clinic patients as anything more than my clinic patients Mm -hmm. and not what their alleged crimes were, let alone feel like less interested in doing clinic that day because of the alleged nature of what these people were in jail for. That's none of my business. Mm -hmm. But I did. And I remember like doing my clinic, whatever. And I remember going up to my medical director. I don't know if it was that day. I'm sure it wasn't the same day. But at some point, and I said, listen, I think I want to talk to you about taking a break, a sabbatical, not a vacation, mm-hmm. like time. And she said, why? And I told her why. And mm-hmm. she said, I'm so glad you have the insight mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. To, to recognize this and not start getting bitter and, and doing less than what you're supposed to do as a, as a doctor. Uh, ultimately did not take that break. I kind of got my mojo back. I don't really know how or why. I just kind of did. But um, the point is, it happened. Um, there was a time that, that and, and I'm sure it'll happen again, mm-hmm. where I'm going to feel jaded and, and, and not just provide this pure, ethereal, like magical, you know, unicorn of, mm-hmm. of I can separate myself from all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Now, one thing that I kept thinking about as you were t- talking about that story, you mentioned the moment that really kind of kind of acted as a springboard to help you, help Patricia. But I also can't help but also think about individuals who maybe didn't have that moment, uh, who never had kind of like the, like me comparing my life to maybe some of these inmates. I can't help but think, you know, their circumstances were so different. And, and how do you keep, how do you keep, I'm, I'm kind of rambling. I know this is a long way around the question, but how do you, well, first off, do you ever just hear these stories and say, man, if one thing would have changed in my life, that could have been me? Or, or is it very much like a process where you're just like, well, that was a series of bad decisions, but you inevitably set yourself up for that? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I guess from my – so maybe, maybe what this goes to is this. Mm-hmm. We've talked about trauma-informed care. I think it's a, probably a bit of an underrepresented and undertaught and underappreciated aspect of healthcare in general, and, and I'm assuming they're teaching trauma-informed care in medical schools now. But maybe just before, because maybe uh, our listeners don't aren't aware. Maybe you can just explain like trauma-informed care. So, so trauma-informed care is a a an understanding of the impact on one's health and health behaviors that originates from essentially we'll use the generic term childhood traumas. So, as a child, and trauma can mean a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, witnessing uh, your parents getting divorced would be a childhood trauma. Um, of course, the obvious things like abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, whatever, all of those things you know, have profound downstream effects on people's lives. And when you speak to your patients and they maybe they don't follow your instructions and they're noncompliant, we, that word I also hate, noncompliant, mm-hmm. and you think, you wouldn't be getting your foot chopped off right now from your diabetic ulcer if you had just taken the medicine that I told you how to do this. What's wrong with you? Right. Believe me when I tell you that the vast majority of people's noncompliance or their, their, their inability or, or whatever reason that they just don't follow through is not because they don't understand what you're telling them in most cases or don't want to take care of themselves. But there are there are deeper things that stem from much earlier in their life. Their addiction, you know, most people I've talked to, and I have a, a vast amount of experience with addiction medicine simply from osmosis. Mm-hmm. They don't say, yeah, I like getting high. Usually it came, maybe a few, it came from the, the, the curiosity or exploration that many people, you know, will try something in their life. But most of them, it was introduced to them at a very early age, often uh, in the context of so-called medicating the pain away. Mm-hmm. And it spiraled from, you know, cough syrup or something, or stealing some pills out of the medicine cabinet to, to street drugs and heroin and, and, and a lifetime of, of addiction and despair. Who would choose that life? Mm-hmm. They don't choose that life. And I know you can say, it's a choice. Don't pick up the crack pipe. If it was that easy, nobody would be addicted to anything. The, the people who say things like that, are utterly disconnected from the reality of addiction. So those people need to be educated, and that's not my job to, t- <laughs> to teach the world how to, how to view people who struggle with addiction. But those types of behaviors don't just, just happen. It's not a series of bad choices. Usually it's decisional you know, limitations that came from quite literally brain damage that occurred from traumas early in life. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 this is medical fact. Um, that's the, the nature of understanding trauma-informed care. So 
uh, I don't even remember the beginning of this question, but that's what trauma-informed care is about. Yeah. I guess my question is, I guess just how you would keep a non-judgmental perspective behind these instances. There before the grace of God go I. Yeah. Okay, that's the simplest way to answer that. You know, I'm not an angel. I am not without flaws. Uh, I've made poor decisions. I often joke with my patients and say, the difference between you and me is you got caught. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm selling drugs or doing some illicit thing, and, and this yeah. is you know on the, on the radio or this is on a podcast, <laughs> but I, I, am saying, I am saying that you know uh, I'm not an angel and I'm not innocent, and, and sometimes it's the neighborhood you're in, it could, you know, some people would say the color of your skin, your, uh, your economic status in society, and a number of other factors, many of which certainly I have privileges. Um, I have white privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't grow up in poverty. Uh, I had all these advantages right from the get-go that probably most, if not all, of my patients did not have. I had uh, relatively stable parenting. You know, I had a mom and a dad in a household uh, a, a decent school and a safe neighborhood, these things that a lot of people, quite frankly, just take for granted and just assume everybody has this. But but there are large swaths of our community where they don't have all of those things. And maybe they have one of them or a couple, but they don't have everything. Mm-hmm. And so when the stars aren't aligned, it's harder, if not nearly impossible, for people to rise above what they've been given, you know, the, the hand you've been dealt. Yeah. And it's not fair, but that is, that's the world we live in. Yeah. Are there any other, I guess, kind of like wild or crazy stories that you have that have really stuck with you uh, in your time that mm. kind of, I guess, open open everyone's eyes to, wow, this actually goes on in uh, in jail medicine? I brought a list of them. <laughs> so we'll, well, why don't I tell you several of them, and you can edit this down as you feel <laughs> yeah. appropriate. So, uh, okay, the, one of the wilder ones, and, and, and it's so odd because – this patient that I'm about to talk about actually recently resurfaced um, in, a, in another sort of another setting outside of the jail. But anyway, so this is a, a young man who I've seen in the jail numerous times over the years for whatever reasons. And I had a slow day, and he came in, and I said, "So, you know, if you don't mind me asking, like, what are you here for this time? Um, you know, how long are you going to be here?" And he says, "Oh, well, I'm not worried about. It. I'm going to walk out of here." And I said, "Really? Well, well, what are you here for?" And he said, "Well, I'm here for breaking and entering, robbery, assault, kidnapping, and rape." And I was like, "Excuse me? And you think you're going to just walk out of here?" And he said, "Oh, yeah, I know I'm going to walk out of here." And I'm completely incredulous because you know those are incredibly yeah. serious charges to have even one of them. For sure. And I said, "So what makes you so sure?" And he says, "Well." So he was a self-professed heterosexual male, but as a, a source of augmenting his income, he was a quote-unquote gay for pay, meaning he, were, he would solicit uh, men on some of those like phone apps and other sites mm-hmm. who were looking for, you know, we'll just say fantasy encounters. I'll use that nice gentle terminology. Mm-hmm. And so he said, yeah, there's this man on the north side of the city who c- connected with me on this app, and he... His request was, I want you, this is a young African-American man, he said, I want you to get three or four of your African-American friends to come to my house and we will stage a break-in followed by you, quote-unquote, pretending to tie me up and beat me up and then, quote-unquote, rape me. That's the fantasy that this person said he wanted. And so he got some of his friends and they went and did exactly what he was asked to do. But... 
the add-on was that while they were there and they realized this person had a lot of nice stuff in their house, and while he was tied up, they decided they would rob him. Mm-hmm. And they did. And then they left. And that's, of course, what led to calling the police and having this guy arrested. And I said, so what makes you think you're going to walk out of here? And he said, well, this man is actually, um, uh, we'll just call him a professional uh, with a bit of a profile to him. Mm -hmm. And I have all of the emails and all of the texts and, and an electronic trail a mile long of him requesting all these things. And no, he didn't ask to be robbed. But I am pretty sure that he's not going to want the rest of this stuff to get out. And believe me, I'm going to trumpet it far and wide if this guy tries to prosecute me. He's not going to want the story out. And fast forward, he did walk out of the jail and the charges were dropped. What? And, and uh, now he's back out in society right now. So oh. um, that, that actually happened. Um, <laughs> how's that for a story? That, that, that's, a, that's what I call a story. <laughs> um, let's see. What else do I got for you? This one was another thing I was ill-prepared from medical school to deal with. Um, so I have a, a young man. He was 27 years old, comes to my HIV clinic. I've never met him before, so he's not one of my serial recidivists. And as I'm in the middle of my H&P, and he doesn't know me, so I'm, I'm virtually a complete stranger to him, I'm just asking the usual medical questions. And about halfway through, he just sort of stops answering them and looks down, and he sort of starts crying. And I'm like, what's the matter? Let's just stop at the questions. What, what's up? And, and he says, I... I need to confess something. And, you know, when you hear the word confess in a jail, I'm ready for mm-hmm. a confession, you know, not what he was about to tell me, though. And he says, I, I, and then sort of muttering very quietly under his breath, he says, I, I can't stop eating Comet. And I, I, I said, what did you say? And he said, Comet. I can't stop eating Comet. And I said, Bathtub cleaner? Bathtub cleaner. I said, like the cleanser. And he said, yes. And I said, whoa, like, hmm. Okay, um, would you care to elaborate? And he says, I, I just can't stop eating it. I think about it. Just thinking about it right now, my mouth is watering. I want some Comet right now. And I'm sitting there trying to normalize something that is clearly not something I've ever heard before. And if you've heard of this in your practice and your training, you know, you know, good for you. And if you know what you're supposed to do when someone tells you this, then good for you. I'm clueless. <laughs> so I, I was clueless. Yeah. So I, I engaged him, and, and he started to say that, you know, I said, well, what is it about this that you, that you like? And he said, I, it's the texture. I like the grittiness in my mouth. I like the way it feels on grinding on my teeth. I like the burning sensation when I swallow it. And I like the burning sensation when I defecate. And I'm just sort of dumbfounded by this. But at the same time, you know, I can't sit there like slack jawed, you know, in awe of this unbelievable story. I have to sort of pretend like, you know, normalize it. So I'm like, okay, well, well, that's, I, that's called a pica, and everybody listening knows the, the, the term pica. Mm-hmm. But it's not a, a, one that I'd ever heard of. I hear of eating dirt or paper or, you know, some ice chips, or ice yeah. chips yeah. but yeah. not comet cleanser. Right. So trying to normalize this, I said, well, listen, you know, why are you telling me this? I mean, I know you want the comet, but that can't be why you're telling me because I'm not going to give you comet. And he said, well, the reason is I've been doing this for so long, and then I was diagnosed with HIV a couple months ago, and so now I'm, like, really worried about my health and it was the first time that it occurred to me, like, that Comet is probably not very good for me, for my body. What does it do if you eat it? And now, again, you know, I have no idea. I don't even know what's in Comet. So thankfully, the, the Google machine was right there in the room. <laughs> and so this is the best part of the story. So when if you Google eating Comet cleanser, you will be dumbfounded by just what pops up on the screen there. There are page after page after page of people's blogs and websites and testimonials. Apparently, a lot of people around this this country have this pica. 
And so that was actually very comforting because he thought he said, I'm the only one. And I said, actually, you're not. Look here. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a support group for this, you know. And then, uh, I, you know, I click the next page or whatever. And sure enough, if you've ever seen that show, My Strange Addiction, there was an episode mm. where a woman in Michigan had the exact same pica and was interviewed. So after work, I actually watched the episode. Fascinating. And everything that he had told me about the grittiness and all those reasons why he were like word for word the things this woman on the episode declared as why she did it. So when I saw this guy in follow-up, I said, okay, well, the active ingredient is essentially bleach, and here's what bleach does to your esophagus and your stomach and whatever. We went over the medical stuff because I had to look it up. I didn't know. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not really not. a stretch that it's bad for you. But, but it was like, let's talk about why, you know, why. And it was then when he essentially revealed to me that he had been sexually abused. And I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, and maybe, I'm, uh, maybe it's a stretch here, but it almost connected with me like that it was a way to, like, clean himself out. Maybe to feel clean on the inside. I don't know if that's why he did it or not. Yeah. That was my own imaginary connection. But what it led to was, well, what I need to do is get you, one, to GI, probably to get scoped if, if, if necessary, and two, to get you to a mental health you know, professional, at least to help process your abuse, yeah. let alone whether or not that's associated with why you're eating Comet Cleanser. Um, that's nothing to do with HIV, and I was not prepared for that for medical school. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. I had a patient who was in maximum security several years in on some sort of a alleged violent crime. Actually, well, he was convicted. It still doesn't mean he did it because sometimes people do what's called copping out where they're locked up waiting trial so long they just give up and say, I'd rather get this over with, and they plead guilty whether mm -hmm. they did or didn't do something, and it's faster to carry out a sentence on a plea deal. So nonetheless, this guy was in on something allegedly quite violent and heinous, and he was in there for so long that, of course, we have a multiple-year relationship as doctor-patient. And he felt comfortable with me, and he often would say, you know, I, I don't want to call them flattering things, but he would say, you know, Doc, if anybody messes with you, you just let me know, and I'll make sure I take care of it for you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, mm. how, how nice. Yes, thank you, <laughs> kind sir. And on one of his last visits before he went off to prison, he says to me, you know, there are some things that are worse than death, and I'm like not really wanting to have this conversation. And I said, uh, okay, well. Anyway, you know, your T-cells are good. And he says, look, you know, um, if anybody messes with you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a pencil and I'm going to shove it through their fucking eye. Uh, and then I'm going to sit them down on a chair. I'm going to spin them around and I'm going to get a pair of bolt cutters and I'm going to shove it in their spine and cut their spinal cord. And, I'm, and he says this to me and this is, what do you say? Yeah, are you? What do you, and I just sit there kind of like, uh, oh. Okay. Uh, thank you. I think um, I'll be sure to remember that when you know someone pisses me off. I guess. Yeah. So I, you know, I have my allies there. But the the flip side of that is, boy, I do not yeah. want him on my bad side. No. That is that is a graphic description. Whether it's actually something that anybody would do, that is, it's frightening when you step back from that and just think that someone even could think of those things to do yeah. to another human being. It's, yeah. So we don't want to steal a ton of more time, but I, I did want to get your perspective on criminal justice reform. Like, what are your thoughts on recently in politics that's been a very kind of hot topic? Uh, do you think that that's a good thing, bad thing? How has it affected you personally with your practice, with some of the changes that have kind of happened? Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? That's a fantastic question. It's a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. So at face value, I think anybody realist, you know, anybody who understands social justice 
would perceive criminal justice reform and ways to get people spend to spend less time in custody and more time getting help is a good thing. So what's what's happened in at least in Cook County over the last couple of years some of some of the reform measures one was essentially turning commercial sex work into a misdemeanor instead of a felony mm-hmm. and what that means is instead of getting arrested you essentially get a ticket and are told to you know appear in court or whatever. So from a why I say a mixed bag is this in my HIV clinic, historically, about 10% of my clinic were, were female. And they would many of them were coming in several times a year because even if they got charged with sex work, they weren't in for very long, back out on the streets doing their thing, and they'd come back in again and again. And every time they came in, they would get a checkup and get screened for sexually transmitted infections and treated if they had them. We would try to link them to care, to case management, all the things we touched on earlier. So there's a lot of, a lot of good that came out of having touched mm-hmm. a, a healthcare system in some form or another, even if the context is corrections, they're, they're accessing care when they maybe aren't at all in the community. But what happened was, now my ladies, they weren't coming in anymore, and they weren't coming to see me at the core center, so well, where are they? Are they anywhere? Are they getting care? Are they spreading disease? Are they themselves getting sick? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And it was uh, concerning, at the very least, because I, I felt good about the fact that I don't think sex workers should be locked up, mm-hmm. but I felt bad because I thought, but at least... We were doing some really good things for them temporarily while they were with us, but now they blow in and out if they're in at all, and and I don't know how much help we can give somebody if they even encounter me before they leave for just one visit sometimes. The second big thing that's happened, I'm, I'm really simplifying a far more complicated thing, is trying to decriminalize poverty, meaning a lot of people are in custody, a lot of people are in custody simply because they cannot afford to post bail, even $100, they can't scrounge up. Imagine a homeless person. I mean, they have nobody. They have no ability to to just get that $100 to walk out. So the only people who are in the jail are people who have extremely high bonds because of the nature of what they were charged with and people who can't afford to get out. And so you're you're criminalizing the poverty. And that's that's something that these social justice champions have have done a very good job of addressing. And so fast forward they created this thing that we affectionately call the rocket docket, where if you're a nonviolent offender with a low bond, they process your case extremely quickly and get you back out on the streets to, to follow up with, you know, whether it's electronic monitoring or, or dismissing the charges altogether, whatever. How that's affected, similar to the females, is historically, uh, especially the poor people, they would actually sit and languish in the jail on very minor charges for long periods, months and months. And of course, they got world-class health care from me mm-hmm. and from all of my colleagues. And they actually, you know, they got fed and medicated and, and case managed and all the good things that come from the good things that come from being in custody. But now they blow in and out. And again, if they're there, they're there for hours or days, not weeks and months. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixed bag because the same thing. I, I, I don't have an opportunity to do as much for them as I would have when they were there for months and months. So don't have an answer to any of this. I just saying my observation is hooray for social justice and um, I worry about what they're doing when they aren't in custody to better their lives because I don't think we have established in our communities the safety net to, to get them those, those, those services and care and things that they need. I mean, the number one thing all of my patients tell me, the most, the most acute need is not money or health insurance or transportation or, or, or drug treatment. It's housing. Mm-hmm. It's housing, housing, housing. Doc, I don't know where I'm going to go when I get out of here. Over and over. I hear it so many times. 
So we don't prioritize in our community addressing those needs, similar to the they're not deserving of, mm -hmm. I pay for my rent and I pay for my whatever, why should we be giving it away? And it's complicated. And again, I don't have an answer for all this, but I do know that the way we're doing things now isn't working. And if you are one of the people who are uncomfortable because the homeless person is blocking the sidewalk with a cup in the air and you, 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 that's awkward for you and you don't want them in your neighborhood, well then <laughs> do something about it. Yeah. They're homeless. That means they don't have a home. How about we give them a home? Let's, let's work on this instead of just wishing they weren't there anymore. Um, and, and replace homeless with whatever the social ill is. But we don't have a society yet that prioritizes taking care of our own. Mm -hmm. And until that happens, you should expect the homeless people on your, on your sidewalks. You should expect your garage to get broken into from time to time. You should expect your, your kids to be offered drugs at school and all of the things that, that society has, has a part of it right now. You should expect it. Yeah. Until we collectively choose to do differently. Yeah, I think that's a that's like a great way to end our discussion of really championing some some things that yeah. that uh, that really need to be addressed in society. Do you have any last minute messages for our listeners or anything like that? Uh, one is a quick plug for correctional health care. You know, I didn't. It wasn't a thing when I was in medical school training, and I know now that that a lot of uh, the medical programs, especially in Chicago, they're there's a lot of interest. We actually have a wait list of students and residents trying to get in to train with us. And I'm very buoyed by this. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired that the next generation like gets it. And I feel like we are on track to, to do differently and do better in the future. That being said, correctional health care, all the, all the crazy and all the weird and all the sad and all the things you just heard, you know, that's part of the deal. And if that's not what you're bargaining for, then it isn't for you. But for, for someone like me, um, I didn't envision it as my career, but I'm, I'm like addicted to it. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I like going to work every day because what's, what's next? What story am I going to hear today? And it's, it, it, it keeps me going. So those things and some of the benefits, which we've talked about in your classes, I don't have time for it now, but think like we don't bill, so we don't have some of the, mm -hmm. the, the, the barriers that, you know, like prior authorizations and managed care stuff that, that burden primary care providers. Well, we don't, we don't have those things because we don't, we don't bill, so there's no one challenging our decisions. Mm -hmm. So correctional health care plug. Um, I guess some people go in the next message or maybe my final message is, you know, as, as I said earlier, if you're a healthcare professional, you are in a position of power and responsibility. And not everybody who chooses healthcare is necessarily going to just go and work in an office or in a hospital or something. There's a lot of ways you can apply your skills and knowledge that can have impact far beyond the patient in front of you. So think about your, your role with the knowledge that you have. You could be, think about, you know, uh, Senator Paul, who is a physician, uh, there, there are there are there are people in very high positions of power that come from our background in healthcare that can that can really make big, meaningful changes in society, and and only people who have a medical background have that perspective to bring, you know, to bring to that table along with everybody else's perspectives. You know, we we bring ours, so use you know use your power wisely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we would just love to thank you again uh, yeah, for coming absolutely. on. It was so revealing and um, such a great interview, and I hope our listeners uh, got a lot out of it. Um, we also want to give you a, a quick shout-out, too. Um, we kind of talked before uh, we sat down here that you're potentially in the works of making maybe a book of all, all those all those stories uh, from the jail, correct? Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> it's been a 15-year Saga, a work in progress, we'll call it. And since I'm only halfway through my my probably 30-plus year career, uh, I guess I wouldn't say stay tuned. But hopefully someday <laughs> I'll, I'll have something in writing that you all will find interesting to read. But um, So no need to plug a book that hasn't been written. <laughs> for sure. Um, but thank you again, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Mm-hmm. Thank of course. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.